0: Welcome to PhotoActive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. Well, it's that time again. It's that time. Wait, it's
1: always that time again, but that time for what?
0: Well, it's that time for this time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're starting that way. Okay. Yeah. He's on third. Yeah. <laughs> oh no.
0: <laughs> so we have a topic that I think this came up like months ago and we kept putting it off because we had other topics that were more timely, like our last episode about the new iPhone. No, the new iPads. Um, this dates back to a moment when I was walking around in the summer and I took a couple of photos. And after I edited them, I got in touch with Jeff and I said, we should do something about the idea of taking a photo when you know it's not going to look in camera the way you want it, but shooting the photo so it can look the way you want after you've edited it. That sounds a little confusing. Maybe it sounds a little confusing,
1: but I think it's something that after a while, I think it starts to become more natural. And this has a lot to do with your familiarity with your tools. I'll start off by saying you know, we always want to try to get things as good as we can in camera uh, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, A, you have a good shot that you can just start from or uh, share or whatever. I mean, the technical capability is helpful to be able to have a good in-camera shot. B, When you do get to the editing section, uh, you have to do less editing. Maybe it's just a a few tweaks here and there. But thinking of that as like the ground floor of the ideal shot, there are so many occasions when you're going to be out shooting for one reason or another, you just can't do that. Maybe the light is bad or maybe your camera doesn't have the dynamic range to capture what you see there and you get back and you say, hmm, it's a little more muted than I remembered. But I still want the image that I had when I was there, what my eyes saw. That's photography. It's it's developing in that that sort of almost literal word. You're developing your image from what you shot.
0: Um, I first want to point out that there will be a link in the show notes to episode 123 where we talked about learn your camera. Um, as you alluded to a couple minutes ago, um, you need to know what your camera can do so you know what your limitations are. and. What's interesting for me here, so I've had my Leica like, Q2 monochrome for just over a year, and I think it took several months to become familiar with the camera. Not not understanding the dials and all that, that's really simple, but how it responds. Every sensor responds differently, and and the Q2 monochrome files, and we'll see in some of the examples in the show notes, when they're unedited, they're very bland. And if you were to take out the DNG file, the raw files, not the JPEGs from the camera, which I've really never used. Mm-hmm. But if you were to look at that and think, okay, this is an expensive camera and it's making these photos that are so bland, but you have to think of these raw files as the raw material that you're going to later process. And I think this is a much better example, even than say a Fuji film, where you've always got a film simulation. Um, and even if you take a raw file, it's not that bad, right? Bad isn't the right word. It's not that bland. It's not that boring. Um, But with monochrome files, they are very muted. They're very bland.
1: Yeah. I think that that just points to the fact that you spent way too much for a camera
0: that's no good. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, So I think the photo that mostly prompted this uh, discussion is – It's one of a barley field across the road from my house. And there was this day with these wonderful clouds. And I went out with a red filter on the camera. Uh, If you're not familiar with shooting black and white, uh, red makes the blue of the sky darker and more contrasty, so when you're shooting with black and white film or with a monochrome camera, generally people use the orange yellow or red filters to alter contrast in sky so I wanted to I was walking around as just getting these photos of the field in the sky, and the one we 're looking at it's really dark and if you take a photo like this and you look at it actually in the camera, you're going to think it's a terrible photo. But if you know what the camera's doing, you're going to think that's exactly what I need to get what I want. Yeah. So let's
1: step through this a little bit because obviously you could have seen this and increased your exposure uh, because I'm assuming that when you're looking at this in the camera and it is dark, it's not like you're sort of stuck with, oh, well, the camera wants to make this dark. No, not at all. So step me through a little bit what you saw and and how you ended up with this quote-unquote dark image.
0: Well, I saw the field and I knew that because of the white clouds uh, – the highlights would be blown out if I let the camera expose the way it wanted. So I used the exposure compensation dial, probably went down about two stops Mm -hmm. uh, for something like this when you compare the original with the edited file, because I wanted to make sure that the clouds were the main item of focus here. And then when I went into Capture One, my editing was to ramp up the shadows and the blacks. Um, dial down the highlights a little bit. There's a linear gradient on the sky to get the top of the sky a little bit darker, which is natural. That bit toward the horizon where the sky is lighter, this is just the way light naturally is, but it kind of highlights it a little bit more and gives it more contrast. Um Knowing that I could do that meant that I could take this picture and not have to worry too much if that makes sense. One of the things is if we expect it to be perfect in the camera, that might be useful if we need to use that photo right away, right? If you need to transfer it to your iPhone and send it to someone. But if you know that you're going to be editing it after, you know what you can do in the edit. So if you look at the hedge along the right, it's almost you can almost not see any detail. Um, In fact, this is a very good example of the quality of these RAW files. There's no detail in the bottom right corner. And if you look at the edited part, you can see the branches of the the hedge very clearly. So all the detail is there, and it's just a matter of messing around with the exposure, um, blacks and and shadows, to bring it out.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really key point, is having the trust not only in your camera's capabilities, but knowing that you can do stuff with it. Um, This happens to me a lot, especially when I'm out shooting landscape stuff, because it's very easy to overexpose, but it's also very easy to underexpose slightly and still get all the detail that you wanted, all the detail that you saw. Uh, A huge part of that is because today's cameras, the sensors are really good and they're just going to, collect a lot of that unless you are in a super dark scene where the absolute darkest sections when you when you bring the exposure up you would just end up with a lot of sort of colorful noise but even that when you're shooting raw especially you can deal with that and so in well, this with case, my
0: camera I wouldn't have colorful noise I'd have monochrome noise <laughs> <laughs> you would <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes this is this is entirely true <laughs> So part of this is getting to know your camera and, and what it can do, and just having some faith in the camera's capability because even though and we've talked about this before, how the computer that has a, a lens attached to it that is your camera can do amazing things and you know it it reads the light well. But sometimes it's trying to expose everything as well as it can and so that can lead to clipping in the highlights in extreme bright areas like these clouds and so if you just sort of take that as it is and say well you know my my expensive camera said this was a good exposure then you may find yourself thinking well it does make sense that that these these very bright sections are white but if it's pure white it limits what you can do later and this way you know that you have some latitude to work with and and again i'm i'm just going to emphasize doing this in raw makes a huge difference
0: i think most cameras today are really good about underexposing to be able to bring up shadows and and blacks in post-processing. And most cameras today have a clipping indicator where you can have like a colored light that shines and that flashes when you're overexposed. So with my Leica, uh, when I see that, I just dial down the exposure compensation because I know that I can recover so much that's in the dark Um, when I'm finished and I don't have to worry about it. Now, your first photo is actually not that different from mine. You took a photo of a valley um, where you've got a very dark section at the bottom of the valley and you did pretty much similar to what I do. You exposed for that mountain peak on the top right there and then you edited after.
1: Yeah, exactly. So this is a shot. And also um, I should point out This is a shot where I specifically put my camera into black and white mode because even though in color, this looks really nice too. Maybe I'll I'll find a version of this in color uh, because there was some golden light hitting the mountains and there are some large trees that are uh, sort of yellow against the the green of the evergreens. But it just seemed like a good black and white scene. And so I put it into black and white mode and – knew that the bottom left corner, which shows there's like a little road in this little valley here. I knew that that was going to be dark because it would be very easy to overexpose the highlights. And I wanted that gradation in the sky. This one is basically exactly what you did, which is take the image, put it into Lightroom, and then I added a gradient, a a linear gradient down the lower left corner that just brought up the shadows quite a bit without uh, messing up the sky or the
0: mountain. I think the lesson to retain from these first two photos is underexpose. Yeah. If you're shooting in RAW, underexpose. You won't go wrong if you underexpose, not drastically underexpose, although my shot of the field was a couple of stops um, below. But Mm -hmm. you know that with raw files from modern cameras, you're going to have a lot of latitude at the low end. But if it's blown out at the high end, then your photo's ruined.
1: Just the nature of the image data. If you have pixels that are just pure white, you can't bring those back. You can't do anything except make them more gray. And then that looks worse. And then they don't look white anymore. (laughs) And then they don't look white anymore. Um, (laughs) And, and yeah, I, I mean, and also similarly, areas that are completely black, those will just become more gray. However, in most shots, there's more than just black there. You don't want to, you know, completely underexpose. And also, this is a good time to point out: uh, make sure that your camera's viewfinder or the LCD, make sure that it is set at a brightness level so that you're getting a pretty realistic look at what you're seeing. I've had in the past taken shots where my my EVF was was too bright and so I thought that I was massively overexposing and I compensated and I came back and looked in Lightroom and saw that that my shots were were very underexposed. Still workable, but I lost a lot of that editing latitude because what I was looking in the camera and even on mirrorless cameras, because the great thing about mirrorless is you're seeing what you're shooting. But if the brightness is out of whack, that's going to trick your eye and make you think that you're overexposed. So make sure that's set. And also take a look at the histogram. If your camera has a little histogram while you're shooting, and that will also help you figure out whether you're in that good range.
0: Okay, my second photo is a pretty simple photo. Um it's the barley field is to the right when I'm shooting this. Um that big tree in the front is uh just in front of my house. If you look at the original, it really shows how bland these uh like a monochrome files are. Uh this is the original unedited file. And I it doesn't look bad, but it looks like maybe an old black and white photo that isn't great, right? Um and then you look at the edits, and the the edits were doing two things again, I was shooting to make sure that the clouds weren't blowing out um but the edit does two things: it brings the clouds up and it increases the contrast a lot Now, I like this sort of contrasty photo like this. this is what I aim for um look at the barn, the long barn on the left, where there's not much detail in the original photo, and it kind of it kind of looks almost three dimensional. Um, it, it has texture in the edit. And even the bushes on the right that are kind of murky, um, a lot of detail comes out of that. So as a photo, I don't think it's a great photo in terms of composition, but it was interesting to see what I could do. Again, there's a linear gradient on the top, um, to make the sky a little bit darker because I like that that dark to light thing. Uh, but the main difference here is, is showing the contrast uh, between the original DNG and what you can do in post-production.
1: I would say that the original is not bad at all. I mean, that would be a perfectly fine shot. I think you're exaggerating just a little bit about how flat it is because you, you see the potential because you were there and also because you've edited yeah. it. But I really like the edit because it has that contrasty punch to it. But it's another example of you're not just looking at at darks and lights here. You're looking at what I imagine is part of the appeal of this shot is while you were standing there looking down this road, you have the, the really interesting brick on the building on the left because it's not just uniform. There's some that are sticking out, yeah. different colors, different shades. And then the wonderful texture of the bushes at the right also helped to draw your eye in toward the composition. And again, I can see how you were standing there with the deliberateness of being able to see – This is a great shot and I'm going to make sure I don't overexpose it, but there's a lot more that I can do once I, once I bring this into an edit.
0: Yeah. And having become familiar with this camera, I said earlier, it took months to become familiar with what this camera does and what you can do. I know that in any bland original, that there's so much that you can just, just dealing with the contrast, just bringing up the, the blacks and the shadows makes a huge difference. Um, And so anytime I shoot with this camera now, I'm aware that this is what it can look like. And It's actually, now that I think of it, it's a lot easier with this camera because... I don't have all those film simulations Mm -hmm. that are on the Fujifilm camera. So with the Fujifilm, you can think, well, if I do it in ProView, if I do it in Acro, so it'll look like this and that. Here, I just have the one thing. So I always know that I can go from this in the RAW file to that in the JPEG when it's edited. Right. Well, and I think this brings me to my next image, but also a really important
1: point that I think we need to make is this is not just about you – accurately reflecting the scene in front of you. There are some people who really enjoy the act of shooting and there are some people who really enjoy the act of editing and there's usually a lot of crossover between the two. And I think in the edit, some people think that your editing is just, it's the chore that you have to do to fix your exposure or compensate for something. But the edit is often a fun creative time for me at least because maybe you have an idea when you were shooting and you know that that in the camera you're not going to quite get exactly what you had there but what you saw with your eyes the potential you can totally bring out in the edit and you can experiment and you can try additional contrast you can make different linear gradients and just see how that works if it doesn't work you know you delete that and you start over what have you so the image that i'm uh, leading up to is a picture of a sole yellow tree next to a creek uh this was shot up in the north cascades near leavenworth and i went up there looking for fall color and didn't find very much it's been a hot long summer and so everything is is delayed up there in terms of the the fall color But as I was driving by, I saw this one tree just sticking out. And if you look at the original, the tree has some yellow on it. It still has some green on it. Uh, But because everything around it is dark rocks and uh, there was also a lot of wildfire smoke and therefore there are a lot of dark tones in this and then this one yellow tree – popping from from among that. Now the original that my that my camera captured, I think is even more muted than than what I saw. Um and, and maybe that's just because I was in tune with looking for any color and because there just wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of color. I was like, oh my God, there is a yellow leaf. I'm gonna stop and 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 photograph the <laughs> hell out of it. Uh but And you were a bit overcome by the smoke as well. A bit overcome by the smoke, yeah. But This was something that I could picture in my mind that this one yellow tree would really pop. And so in the edit, I did that. So this edit actually has a lot of things going on. and uh, I'll also put a screenshot of, of what this looks like in Lightroom. Uh, last week, we talked about some of the masking capabilities in in Lightroom. And I, I put that to use quite heavily in this. So, for example, uh, I did a, a color range mask on the yellows of the tree. And so just the, the yellows are selected and I brought up uh, – those those yellow tones the the luminance in the yellow and the orange um i warmed up the the entire image i uh, made Separate luminance masks so that I could make sure that the the water still looked like water. It wasn't super yellow, so I cooled that down. Uh, I brought up the exposure a little bit in the rocks in the foreground, but not too much because I like the starkness of the of the dark shadows there. Uh, there's just there's a lot going on, but I think that this is one of my favorite shots from this this uh, weekend excursion because. It tells the story that I was thinking at the time, which is there's not a lot of color here. There's wildfire smoke in the sky. And yet here's this one yellow tree sticking out next to this little creek. And so much of that was done in the edit. I didn't change anything per se. I just exaggerated different elements of it.
0: So you're saying that photos aren't true? I'm saying that photos are a lie. Photos lie to you. (laughs) (laughs) It it is interesting. I mean, in in photojournalism, you can't cheat. You could change exposure and stuff, but you can't really cheat too much. Um, But it's interesting how much you can – Basically, you're thinking of what you want the photo to be, and then you're working to bring it to that point. So you've got this image. You remembered when you shot it. You get home. You're looking at the computer. This is what I wanted it to look like. And you tweak it so it looks the way you want.
1: Yeah, exactly. This photo matches my memory of the event, even though the reality of it was not as pronounced.
0: Well, but the... Maybe the reality was pronounced, but the camera just couldn't capture it because of all the limitations of dynamic range and exposure.
1: Maybe I took a couple of iPhone shots, and I, I should find those and put them in the show notes and see see what the iPhone did. Uh, I, I don't think it's it's that different. It's just the the tree wasn't as yellow as I had hoped it to be, and so I very deliberately pushed that uh, in so the end. you
0: did cheat. I did cheat. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I artistically <laughs> edited, <laughs> which for a landscape yeah. shot um, is absolutely totally fair normal. game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know.
0: Did you do a, a, a shot of this in landscape format? I tried a couple of landscape ones and it didn't quite work. Because uh, I can't really tell how steep the valley is on the left, uh, whether you have enough space. Because I could see this as the kind of thing where the yellow – is off to the right of the photo, kind of balancing the empty space of mm. the dark rocks or something.
1: Yeah. So off to the left, there wasn't a whole lot of space to work with because it basically curved into where the road is. Mm. And so if I were to to crop that in and arrange it so that, like you said, the tree was on the right, uh, I wouldn't get as much of the creek... And that that like nice sort of backward S shape that and you that wouldn't really get the height of
0: the trees in the background with the smoke. Yeah. Okay. So the takeaway here is you can cheat. You can lie. the photo <laughs> is going to be whatever you want. Well, in some ways, it's true. No, it's t- totally true. I want to share a quote, and this is from an article that I was writing about something totally different, um, and I think this is actually quite interesting. I was writing about outlining uh, novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and John Irving has often talked about the way he writes. And this is a quote from an interview. By the time I was writing the Cider House Rules, I thought, well, you seem to work best when you begin with the last sentence. And once I know like a piece of music, what it sounds like at the end, where I'm going, I make a kind of roadmap in reverse back to where I think the story should begin. And that's what this makes me think of. In our minds, we have that last sentence And we have to go from the original and make that roadmap to get there in the edit.
1: That's a fantastic analogy. Yeah. And I also think that uh, sometimes that trips us up because we'll have an image in our head of what we want to capture. Maybe you're going to a place, you've seen a picture that somebody else took and you're like, I want that. And the conditions don't really allow for that. And so sometimes you have to completely throw away that image, but- at least for me, I think because I I do quite a bit of editing and I've been adept at working in Lightroom for a long time, it's easier for me to look at a scene and see the potential of it and realize, OK, I think that this tree is really going to pop and I roughly know how I'm going to get there so I can take the photos that will get me closest to there and then reach that that end goal in editing. Okay. Time for our snapshots. What have you got? I actually have a camera thing. That's a change. I know. (laughs) It is a change. So, um, you know, we're talking about landscape photography. I also occasionally shoot portraits and in our last episode, I talked about a a softbox that I've had for a long time and – This came up because uh, there was a a homecoming dance and uh, Halloween just happened here. So I was taking a couple of pictures just in my living room and I wanted to have a flash to go along with it. So I have a little old strobe, but I need some way to trigger that flash. Now, if I were to start doing a lot more portrait photography right now, I'd probably look into upgrading my gear, but I just – I don't have that need right now. And so what I've been using as a trigger is uh, this Photix, P-H-O-T-T-I-X Aries. It comes in two pieces. There's a receiver that you connect to the flash, and then there's a transmitter that you connect to your camera. And basically, it's just a radio signal that tells the flash when to fire. Um, There are much more complex, sophisticated ways to do this. If you look at anything that Joe McNally does, you know, we had Joe McNally on our podcast. uh, It's just amazing. You have different zones and it it can get super complicated. I just wanted something that will trigger a flash when it's not on my camera. And I went through several really inexpensive ones and they all – they all just fail after, after some amount of time. And so this is one uh, that costs more, quote-unquote more. It's, it's about $50. And in fact, when I went to go look for it, I didn't find this exact model. Uh, so I found something similar that I'll, I'll put in the show notes. Um, it's like $46, $47, but that's still completely affordable. And the most important thing is it's been really reliable. Whereas the really cheap ones, it will be like 20 bucks. Uh, Just It's like tripods. Don't, don't go for the <laughs> cheapest one because it's going to fail you when you most need it. The cheap flash trigger is the kind that unlocks cars, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> so the one that I found, which looks like the one that I have. So it's not even by this company, but it – I mean it looks exactly the same. Um, this one is by AODALAN, wireless flash trigger. Uh, but again, like it, it looks exactly the same. Um, $43 and uh, I, I've just found it to be super solid. And that, that's what you want because you don't want to have to think about this or have to run a cable. I've had to do this too with my old ones. Uh, run a, a physical cable from your camera to the flash unit and – Forget it. Uh, (laughs) Kirk, what do you have this week?
0: Well, this is not about photography except there are photos in the book. That counts. Um, It is a – Yes. And it has a photo on the cover. It is a book that I just received today. It just came out, The Philosophy of Modern Song by Bob Dylan. Apparently he's been working on this for over 10 years. He looks at 60 different songs, not his songs, songs by other people, Um, My Generation by The Who, Jackson Brown's The Pretender, Marty Robbins' El Paso, Truckin' by The Grateful Dead. And he talks about the songs, what makes them work, what the stories are. It, this is not a musicology. This is, if you ever um, caught any of uh, Bob Dylan's, what is it, theme time song hour, I think it was called. Um, he would spend an hour with, say, songs about coffee and he'd kind of riff about them in between. He'd tell some of the history, but also some of the ideas. If you haven't heard it, look it up. A theme time radio show, something like that. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, you can find the archives. Um, but this is a book where. He just looks at songs and discusses them. What do they mean? Why are they here? What do they do? Um, If you want the real experience, you have to get both the book and the audiobook, because the audiobook is read by Dylan with a bunch of other people, actors. Um, And the audiobook has the wonderful voices. The hardcover book has the photos. So you kind of need them both. So this is The Philosophy of Modern Song by Bob Dylan.
1: That sounds great. Although I'm a little disappointed that that you didn't do that in the voice of Bob Dylan.
0: Well, my voice today is kind of like that, but... (laughs) uh, (laughs) That's it. That's what I wanted. (laughs) That would be sacrilegious, though, to do the Bob Dylan voice because I can't really do it. No one can do it. It's like, it's sui generis. It's a voice that no one can imitate. Anyway, until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.